could see the video that accompanies that old classic hymn, you would see scenes of young, beautiful children doing exactly as the lyrics would put it. They are Christian soldiers marching as to war. The images are terrifying. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred, and I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. This is a different kind of podcast because I'm doing something that I normally don't do. I tend to stay in my lane. I tend to only comment really on issues that affect the Jewish world, but not today. Today, we are delving into the topic of white Christian nationalism. And you might ask, why is this something that I, as a rabbi, choose to engage? The reason is that the subject is so hot, so alive, and frankly, it's so upsetting precisely because it is about the weaponization of faith. I want you to hear that again the weaponization of faith. It is about onward Christian soldiers going to war. And in the words of the title of this podcast, I am shaken and stirred, and I know that you will be as well, because here to shake me and stir me and to shake all of us is our guest, Professor Marsha Pally. Professor Pally teaches at New York University, at Fordham University, and held the Mercator Guest Professorship in the Theology Department at Humboldt University, Berlin, where she is an annual guest professor. Now, this is not Professor Pally's first time at this rodeo. We hosted her several months ago when she talked about her book, From This Broken Hill, I Sing to You, God, Sex, and Politics in the Work of of Leonard Cohen, which I have said to her without any fear of false flattery, is in an entire bookshelf of books on Leonard Cohen, probably the best. And so that book led me to read her latest book, White Evangelicals and Right-Wing Populism. How did we get here? How did we get here? Welcome, Professor Pally. Welcome back to Martini Judaism. My pleasure to be here. So who are you and how did you get into this topic? First, uh, let me thank you for your kind words on the book on Leonard Cohen, and also for taking the time to speak with me today about white evangelicals and right-wing populism, my most recent book. I'm a professor, as you've mentioned, and I work on religion in the public sphere. And when it comes to the United States, one of the most prominent intersections of religion, culture, and politics is the 
Activity, Activism and Politics of White Evangelicals. In my first book on evangelicals about a decade ago, which resulted from years and years of field work, I made the comment that trying to understand America without e understanding evangelicals was like trying to build an Ikea bookcase without understanding screws. You might get a few of the parts, but you wouldn't get how the whole thing hangs together. White evangelicals and evangelicals overall have been a prominent force politically and intellectually and spiritually on the American landscape since the founding of the country. And I think it's imperative to understand that history and current politics in order to understand our country. Professor Pally, there are so many words that we throw around in our conversations, not you and I, but in general, evangelicals, fundamentalists. So let's just drill down. Who are evangelicals and what do they believe? Thanks so much for being so careful to ask that question. Evangelicalism is not a confession or a denomination. It's an approach to Protestantism across denominations that emerged in the 17th and 18th centuries, again, right about the founding of this country. And it emerged from the free-thinking and dissident and pietist churches of Europe, the Moravians, the dissenters, the Anabaptists. It sought a more personal relationship to Jesus that was more personal than the uh, relationship in the state churches that was common at the time, three, two hundred years ago. So it emphasized this personal relationship to Jesus and to the Bible. That's biblicalism with an emphasis on the cross as a symbol of salvation, but also as a symbol of service. It emphasized the mission to bring others to that personal relationship, and it emphasized individual Bible reading by ordinary men and women, without necessary reliance on priestly authority. And this made evangelicalism an apt religion for the modern age, the post-printing press age, when ordinary men and women increasingly were learning to read and to parse the texts of the Bible, like many other reading materials, for themselves. It also made evangelicalism an apt religion for do-it-yourself America, where people came to this country to start over free from the authorities, be they political or ecclesial, from the countries they came from. So we're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but I want to take the second part of the title of your amazing book, Right-Wing Populism. What is populism? Can you define that for us? Yes. And this is very important because, as you know, people um, use that word meaning different things. But in scholarship and research, you have to be very careful about your definitions so we know exactly what we're talking about. And I come to this from the field of comparative populisms. Populism has a core, a central of about three characteristics that are present in all populisms. And then it has second order features that are present in Brazil or Poland 
or Hungary or the UK or the United States, depending on the culture and history of the location. The core of populism is that populism begins with duress. Could be rapid technological change, rapid changes in gender role, economic duress, but not only economic duress, changes in one's status in society, or fear of any of the above. Whether it's happening now, or one sees the writing on the wall and fears change to status, economics, one's sense of being on top of things, knowing how things go down in your society vis-a-vis -vis technology, gender role, demographics, etc. So duress is the first part. The second part is us-them flip. A funny thing happens when people are under duress, all people, not just evangelicals. Under duress, our normal focus on our own families and communities, jobs and endeavors, switches outward towards a them, a them ostensibly responsible for the duress. This is a survival mechanism. If you sense loss, danger, fear of danger, you have to focus on the source. And if you're on the savanna and you hear a rustle in the grass, you want to know if that's a rabbit or a tiger. So you need to focus for survival reasons on what is the source of duress. The third aspect is, who do people identify as the sources of their duress? And that comes from each culture's history, good political history, economic history, religious history, social history, and so on. Duress, us them flip, and then the culture that guides people to identifying who the them is who the thems are that are causing the duress. So the easiest thing to tell people is what they already know. And often people choose as them who's causing the duress, groups that have been traditionally identified as the source of duress in that particular culture. So in, the, in Hungary, you hear in populism a lot about the Roma you don't hear a peep about the Roma in the United States. It's not part of our history and culture. In the United States, the traditional groups that are suspect as being the source of duress are government and associated elites and, on the other side, outsiders, people of color and new immigrants. And these traditional sources of them go back to the very beginning of our country. We can see it in the Alien Sedition Acts from the 1790s. That was already expressing suspicion of outsiders, new immigrants. Of course, we have the or sin of American culture in the slave system and perpetual racism against people of color. Our identifying government, we are very suspicious of government, and people of color and new immigrants, outsiders supposedly, is very deep in the American DNA. So when there's duress and people go into us-them flip, government and outsiders, people of color and new immigrants, are the most ready to hand thems to select as the source of duress. The tragedy comes if that's a misidentification. If 
either government or people of color or new immigrants are not the actual source of duress. And that becomes tragic because that means the original source of duress is not being relieved, only to spark another round of us-thems flip and attacks against the thems who have been identified but are not really causing the duress. Such a simple, elegant, and coherent definition of the problem. So are there links that you're seeing between white evangelical populism and the current political situation in Israel with its radical right turn? And as we record this, let the record note that this coalition is, as it has been since the moment it came into fruition, rather shaky. So this conversation will not be irrelevant. It will always be relevant. But what is the connection between the populism here and the populism in Israel? As I understand it, there are a number of connections. First is the financial and other forms of support coming from white evangelicals and going to right-wing groups in Israel. And this support um, stems from the evangelical belief that the second coming of Jesus will begin after the ingathering of the Jews to the land of Israel, at which point, when the Jews are ingathered into Israel, the second coming will begin. Jews will have a choice to convert and follow Jesus or not. And if they don't, then they will suffer demise in the apocalypse that will precede um, Jesus's eternal reign. So that is, that is one very direct connection. Um, I, as I understand it, what's going on in Israel today also has two aspects. There's the political party aspect that you, um, that you just spoke of. It's a political coalition that is interested in um, being in power to implement policies that it thinks is best for the state of Israel. It's a political party and, or political coalition. But the, there's another aspect to uh, the situation in Israel, which is something much more akin to populism, where there are many groups on the ground, not top-down, but bottom-up, on the ground, who are feeling a wide range of duresses, are in what I call strong populist mindset, and are very active against the thems that they identify. Let me take a second to um, explain what I mean by strong populism. Populism isn't an on-off switch. It's a continuum from soft populism to strong populism, um, from left-wing populism to right-wing populism. So if we think of something like Bernie, Bernie Sanders would be an example of soft left-wing populism. But as you move along the continuum, meaning the us-them relationship becomes more permanent in your mind, more a matter not of politics and negotiation, but a matter of good and evil. As the tolerance for ambiguity recedes, can 
the other person be still a member of the vox populi. Then the, the needle moves from soft populism increasingly to strong populism. And we see some very strong populism in Israel. I'm distinguishing, right, the grassroots populist movements from the top-down power politics in Israel. And that is also very strong. The thems in the Israeli case have to do, of course, with national security, um, both from state actors, other countries with militaries in the neighborhood, but it also has to do with cultural issues that the Haredi or ultra-Orthodox communities fear being trounced by more progressive Jews, more secularized Jews, Jews who belong to either the conservative reform or reconstructionist streams of Judaism. And they. this is also part of their duress. And I'm speaking of duress, of course, in all cases, from the perspective of the people experiencing it. Not from my perspective or your perspective, but from because that's what motivates political behavior, the way people fear and feel, and that's what motivates their activism. So duress is always in the experiencer, in the experience of the person experiencing it. It's about fear. By the way, I want to offer just a, a slight corrective on the source of evangelical support for Israel, much of which I find to be problematic. But not necessarily theologically. It's interesting. I once encountered Ralph Reed, the great evangelical Christian political leader, and I asked him what the source of Christian evangelical support for Israel is. I asked him whether it was this end of days stuff, and he said to me in an accent that I shall not try to imitate, because I'll be speaking in Atlanta this weekend, he said, Rabbi, I've been in church every Sunday of my life. I've never heard that. I said, what's it about? And he said, Rabbi, it's about Genesis chapter 12. Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And Rabbi, we want the blessing. So I have my suspicions about their support, but largely on political grounds. In other words, their vision of Israel is not a vision that I support. And yet what they have in common with the Israeli right wing, and you really illuminated this for me and for us, is a common set of of fears of the foreign and the secular. I, I have to admit that in my field research, I have heard both um, end times explanations for support. Um, I have heard geopolitical explanations for support from what, mostly white evangelicals to Israel. I've heard a wide range, both just what you said and, and what I said. But I think the last point that you noted is getting to the rub and, uh, and it will enable us to get back to the white evangelicals in this country, which is when people fear, they fight. And people will fight very hard for the guy they think is fighting for them. It's the reptilian brain kicking in, isn't it? <laughs> Um, I'm going to leave that one to you. <laughs> well, I, I didn't do well in biology, but I think there is something about the reptilian brain, this fight or flight thing. Let me go to the second part of the title of your book. I know that we've been staying on this title for a while because it's so rich. The subtitle is, How Did We Get Here? Why that subtitle? Where are we and how, in fact, did we get here? This is the most in many ways, important point of the book. The subtitle, How Did We Get Here, is sort of more important than the title. 
because white evangelicals occupied a tremendously important role in building this country since the 17th century. And for much of that history were progressive, supporting public education in foreign policy, opposing Indian sati and Chinese foot binding. I'm talking about the early, um, the early 1800s. Um, and settling this country as immigrants moved west with every manner of civic and public endeavors and building. Let me give you one example. In 1850, the largest U.S. government office, in fact, in the entire period before the Civil War, was the Postal Service. But by 1850, evangelical churches had doubled the employees compared to the U.S. Post, twice as many facilities, and raised three times as much money for their overwhelmingly progressive projects. Northern evangelicals were vocal abolitionists against the slave system. Southerners defended the slave system in Christian voice, but both were strong advocates for their local communities. Evangelicals, with this largely progressive history, in the late 19th century was possible, even into the early 20th century, to be an evangelical and a socialist. And yet, in the post-war period, starting really from the late 1960s, evangelicals have moved to the right, politically, and then to the populist right, and then many of them, not all, by no means all, but many of them, to the strong populist right. And in my book, White Evangelicals and Right-Wing Populism, I wanted to trace how they got there. What is the history politically and culturally? And what are the current circumstances starting from the late 1960s, the last half century, that combined to move them to strong right-wing populism? What are the current duresses and what are the historical, religious, and cultural resources that moved white evangelicals, most of them, to strong right-wing populism? That's why the subtitle is so important. It's very important. So, for example, I'd like you to open a window and a door for us. I know, based on my voluminous reading, that there are white evangelicals who are not on the radical right. I'm thinking of Jim Wallace and Sojourner's Magazine. This is an evangelical who's actually on the political left. How can you describe their politics, their lifestyles? What are their churches like? And how, how do they read Christianity? So that's absolutely correct. And thank you for bringing it up because otherwise we risk simplifying a very complex landscape. Jim Wallace is a leader of the evangelical left that began in the early 1970s. And people like him, Tony Campolo, Brian McLaren, have been working for half a century on what is called kingdom ethics or Christian humanism, which takes the lessons of Jesus to be responsible for the least of these, the least of these economically, in terms of racial prejudice, in terms of disability, etc. And I, I would recommend uh, contemporarily 
David Gushy's book on kingdom ethics and Christian humanism. Your listeners can go to Amazon and click Gushy, G-U-S-H-E-E. And he has written a wonderful book just two years ago on Christian humanism and how that applies to our political and economic policies. But the core of it is the the lesson of Jesus's donation while he was alive, his lessons of including the prostitute, the tax collector, the leper, the outcasts, the outsiders in society, and being responsible for their well-being. And since then, we have seen many organizations and individuals who are white evangelicals who are not on the radical right. Um, I've mentioned David Gushy, but I'll mention Yerusha Duford, the granddaughter of Billy Graham, who in 2020 founded the group Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden on the understanding that the way to reduce abortion was to reduce poverty. And Biden's policies were going to be not perfect, but far better at that than the Republican policies. I'll mention the work of Young Evangelicals for Climate Action and the many students at Christian universities who are fighting for inclusion of LGBTQ students. I will mention the group Evangelicals for Democracy that just formed last year, or the long-standing and wonderful Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. <clears throat> All of these groups are working from the principle of kingdom ethics and Christian humanism to broaden opportunities for all Americans and for the least of these among us. What's amazing is that these are the same texts that everyone's using, correct? Correct. There's a wonderful sermon that Jim Wallace gave, probably the most memorable sermon I ever heard about. He stood in front of a congregation and he held up two copies of the Bible, both Testaments. And one copy of the Bible had a few holes in some of the pages. And he said, out of this Bible, I have cut out every single verse in both Testaments that is incontrovertibly about LGBTQ issues. Then he held up the other one, and it was in tatters. He said, out of this Bible, I have cut every verse in both Testaments that are about economic justice. And you tell me what the essence of biblical religion really is. It was spectacular. That is brilliant with the visual aid, right? When I interviewed Tony Campolo for my first book on evangelicals, he said, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible on aiding the poor and the outsider and the stranger, the least of these. And... You tell me what is the essence of Jewish and Christian biblical ethics, right? It's the same point. This is a very Jewish conversation because it ends on a note of hope, but we're going to be right back. Just stick around. We're hanging out with Professor Marsha Pally, and we're talking about white evangelicals and American populism. We'll be right back.
I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. This is Rabbi Jeff Salkin, and welcome back to Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred from Religion News Service. Professor Marsha Pally has been shaking and stirring all of us. I want to go back to a specific moment in American history that I think some of us would agree is one of the darkest moments of our national narrative. I'm going to quote from your book. Among those who on January 6th, 2021, rioted at the U.S. Capitol building, claiming that the 2020 election had been stolen from Donald Trump, was a small group that stormed the Senate chamber, removing his horned helmet, a bare-chested shaman figure named Jacob Chansley led the group in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gracing us with this opportunity to allow us to exercise our rights, to allow us to send a message to all the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs. We will not allow America, the American way of the United States of America, to go down. Thank you, divine, omniscient, and omnipresent creator God for blessing each and every one of us here and now. In Christ's holy name, we pray. Now, don't worry, I'm going to be putting this into my column so that you can all see the text in front of you, but Professor Pally, let's play with that text. What do we learn from this, as the Talmud would put it? My nafkamina, what's here? Here we have your point about people of faith relying on the same sacred texts and reading them very differently. So I was speaking of evangelicals just a moment ago who are focusing on the least of these and inclusion, who are defying then-President Trump and the Republican Party on immigration and refugee resettlement, for example. In the text you read from the January 6th riot, you have someone saying, this country is ours, not theirs. This is someone, and here... I think we have to start digging in a little bit to how populism works. This is someone in fear. This is someone who is afraid, whether you and I agree with it or not, afraid that his place in society is being taken away. It is being taken away, right? There's the duress. And that duress may be like duresses that many Americans face, economic, technological, technology changes so fast, changes in gender roles, etc., etc. But it could be specific duress to the evangelical community. The two main ones are the history of persecution. Evangelicals come to their fear of persecution by government and by other authorities. Honestly, they were the groups that were being persecuted by governments and state churches in Europe, which is why they came here. So they have a solid tradition of suspicion and wariness of governments. 
Today, they also have um, fear of prominence loss. Uh, white evangelicals used to be, the, in many ways, the default norm setters of American life. And today, uh, we have increasing numbers of people who are secular. The number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right, unaffiliated, is growing. Um, we have an increasingly progressive society on culture issues, regardless of faith tradition all across the board. Um, a majority of Republicans support gay marriage, and a supermajority of Republicans support um, legislation protecting LGBTQ plus persons from discrimination in housing, medicine, jobs, and so on, anti-discrimination law. So there's, this, there's uh, not only the sense of historical persecution, but of contemporary prominence loss and the fear that their way of life is going, again, to be demolished by the tyranny of the secular, abetted by their old boogeymen, big government. So evangelicals have a double sense of duress. They have duresses that many Americans face, technological gender roles, economic um, shifts in, in society um, of all sorts. And they also have the duresses specific to white evangelicals, the historical persecution and the sense of prominence loss. So they really have a double set of duresses. And as we've said, that prods people into us-them flip, and then people start looking around for who the familiar, ready-to-hand thems are. That's what you're hearing in that prayer. What's amazing to me is that when I think of the white American evangelical support for former President Donald Trump, despite his personal life and his proclivities, and how this violates the ethics of Christianity and I think any mainstream religion and certainly violates evangelical ethics. You write in your book, 55% of white evangelicals before the 2020 election said that they saw Trump as, here's the quote, being called by God to lead at this critical time in our country. What is this about? I can't get my mind around this this evangelical hip hypocrisy, what, what, what am I missing? What are we all missing here, Professor Pally? I don't think it's hypocrisy. I think that Donald Trump was talented in pinging or animating fears that people are actually having and animating the traditional thems who did Donald Trump go after? Big government, the DC swamp, the deep state, the regime. These are phrases that are just updates of what Americans would have understood in the 17th and 18th centuries. You know, the redcoats are coming. The authorities are under suspicion. Are, we have a cultural wariness. And Donald Trump was very good at animating long-standing fears of government and associated elites for Americans overall, and especially for white evangelicals, because as I just um, said, they have a double source of duress. 
Um, they also have a double source of fear of government and outsiders. And I think this is worth just a minute to explain. So all Americans come from a culture where our uh, forefathers and foremothers emigrated from places which had either oppressive political, religious, or economic regimes, or all three at once. So all of America has a suspicion of government in its DNA. Evangelicals have double of that, and they have double, they also have a doctrinal aspect added to it that other Americans may not have. And that is the evangelical emphasis on individually working out your relationship with Jesus and your moral code without reliance on authorities. Now, all of Protestantism has this to some degree, but this is a hallmark of the evangelical approach to Protestantism. And we, we have wonderful material from the 19th century where, and from the First Great Awakening in the 18th century where evangelicals are encouraged to rely not even on their own churches or pastors for working out their moral relationship with others and their personal relationship with Jesus. So they have, in addition to American suspicion of government authorities, they have a doctrinal push to be wary of authorities. So they have a, a double dose of wariness of government and their associated elites. Back to Donald Trump. You know, he ran his campaign rallies beginning in 2015s like focus groups. He would say something. If it got a lot of applause, he would say it again in the next speech. If it didn't, he would drop it. And so he discovered that he could animate American and evangelical fear of authorities and fear of outsiders. Evangelicals were especially fear fearful of outsiders because they were very wary not only of government coming in and persecuting them, but also that outsiders would come in and disturb their covenantal way of life. The ancestors of today's evangelicals, for example, in, among the Puritans, um, had a covenantal reform political theory from ref the reform branch of Protestantism, where they b believe very strongly in the covenantal community and its responsibility for its members and its responsibility to follow the ways of the Lord. And they were always, in Europe and the United States, fearful that both government and outsiders would come in and disturb this covenantal way of life. And now we come to what I think was the most heart-rending part of my writing this book, which was, is the irony of American, um, of American populism, that America, in general, and as built in part by evangelicals, has wonderfully vibrant aspects stemming from wariness of authorities, our anti-authoritarianism, our requirement that government be by the people, of civilian control of the military. The, we have a culture that is brilliantly democratic out of our wariness of government in the early modern era. And yet, 
under duress, what happens to that fear of government, authorities, and outsiders? It flips into us, them, flip, right? Those are the cultural resources. People are under duress. They are looking around for who is responsible and who are the traditional targets, government, associated elites, experts, and outsiders in the United States, people of color and new immigrants. And so I was so struck by this in the years of writing this book and doing the research that the very strengths of American anti-authoritarianism and vibrant grassroots local democracy and this wonderful do-it-yourself spirit, do not rely on the state, don't um, can become the resource for us, them, flip, to, to identify government and outsiders, people of color, new immigrants, as the them. What a, what a tragic irony that the best in America can also be utilized or funneled into us, them, flip. We'll be right back. I confess to you that I could not put Professor Pally's book down. The amazing thing is that I read it right before I watched Andrew Callahan's documentary, This Place Rules, which just came out and which is available on HBO Max. This Place Rules is a chronicle of his trips across the United States, visiting people who wound up or whose compatriots wound up on the steps of the Capitol building on January 6th. Many of these people were terrifying. I mean, they're also physically terrifying. Look, I believe everyone has the right to do with their bodies as they want to, but these people seem to have gone out of their way to alter their appearances so as to look really scary. They define the meaning of terror, and it worked. It terrified me. This whole issue of how faith intertwines itself with right-wing politics, violent bigotries, all of that, this fascinates me. It grimly fascinates me, but it fascinates me. I was particularly terrified and depressed in the film by the interviews with children, children who believe in various conspiracy theories, including the QAnon conspiracy theory, but I found it absolutely revolting that they were quoting those theories and then they were using terms like globalist or Rothschilds, which, let the record note, are anti-Semitic dog whistles. So yes, this is a larger issue than merely an internal white Christian Protestant issue. This touches all of us and it reminds me of something about faith. The late Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who served as the chief rabbi of Great Britain and who apparently had a warm relationship with the current King Charles, once said this, and this has always stayed with me. Religion has the power to make good people better and it has the power to make bad people worse. It's ultimately our choice. So thank you, Professor Marsha Pally, for being with us. Well, again, it's my pleasure anytime to speak with you about such complex and necessary, necessary to understand phenomena. 
This has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. This has been Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred, the podcast. And I implore you, invite you, and would even plead with you to read Marsha Pally's latest book, White Evangelicals and Right-Wing Populism, How Did We Get Here? And I invite you to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Lance Roger Axt. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Shalom, everyone. We'll see you around. Bye-bye.